Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, Daniel chapter 10. Today we're going to begin what is the last segment of the book of Daniel. I suspect you didn't think we'd be in it for probably two-thirds of a year. Now chapters 10 through 12 probably would have been better presented if they were one long chapter in our Bibles as, as it was in the original. Not divided up into three as we find them today because it can confuse matters more than they need to be. Now to be clear, Chapters 10 through 12 in Daniel are one long oracle. The happenings are one long continuation. Now the best way to think of Daniel chapter 10 in light of the way that Christian scholars divided up the book of Daniel many centuries ago is as an introduction to Daniel's final vision. So chapter 10 introduces the context for the vision. The vision itself is contained in chapters 11 and 12. Now perhaps the most important thing for us to understand is that this vision of Daniel is directly connected to the vision he received back in chapter 8. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are essentially a progressive revelation of the vision that Daniel was given back in chapter 8. I think considering the enormous amount of information contained in the book of Daniel as well as its complexity and its mystery, we ought to take the time to reread chapter 8 before we read chapter 10. That way the connection becomes very obvious. So, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1110-1110. After that first vision, it was in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar that another vision appeared to me, Daniel. I looked into the vision, and as I looked, I found myself in Shushan, the capital in the province of Elam. I looked into the vision, and I was by the Ulai Canal. I looked up. And as I watched there in, front of, uh, there in front of the stream stood a ram with two horns. The horns were long. One was longer than the other. The longer one came up later than the other. I saw the ram pushing to the west, north, and south, and no animals could stand up against it, nor was there anyone who could rescue from its power. So it did as it pleased. It became very strong. I was beginning to understand. But a male goat came from the west, passing over the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a prominent horn between its eyes. It approached the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the river, and it charged with a savage force. I watched as it advanced on the ram, filled with rage against it, struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. It threw the ram to the ground, trampled it down. There was no one that could rescue it from the goat's power. The male goat then became extremely strong. But when it was strong, the big horn was broken. 
and in its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the directions of the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory. It grew so great that it reached the army of heaven. It hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground. It trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The place of a sanctuary was thrown down. Through sin, the army was put in its power along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground as it acted and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? This vision concerning the regular offering and the transgression, which is so appalling that allows the sanctuary and the army to be trampled underfoot. And the first said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings after which the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. After I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was trying to understand it, Suddenly there stood in front of me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from between the banks of the Ulai, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. He came up to where I was standing and his approach so terrified me that I fell on my face. But he said to me, human being, understand that the vision refers to the end of time. And as he was speaking with me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face towards the ground. He touched me, he set me on my feet, and he said, I'm going to explain to you what will happen at the end of the period of fury because the vision has to do with the time of the end. You saw a ram with two horns, which are the kings of Median Persia. The shaggy male goat is the king of Greece. The prominent horn between its eyes is its first king. As for the horn that broke and the four which rose up (coughs) in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power the first king had. In the latter part of their reign, when the evildoers have become as great as possible, there will arise an arrogant king skilled in intrigue. His power will be great, but not with the power the first king had. He'll be amazingly destructive. He'll succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. He will succeed through craftiness and deceit, become swelled with pride, destroy many people just when they feel the most secure. He will even challenge the prince of princes, but without human intervention, he will be broken. The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. But you are to keep the vision secret because it's about days in the distant future. I, Daniel, grew weak. I was ill for some days. Then I got up and took care of the king's affairs, but I was appalled at the vision. I still couldn't understand it. I'm sure that has jogged your memories as we, as we read about the times that are future to Daniel. And using the symbolism of a shaggy male goat and a ram with two horns, a vision of a confrontation between two of the four predicted Gentile world empires is explained. And in a nutshell, it is that the ram with two horns is the media Persian empire, the shaggy male goat is the Greek Empire, which defeats the Media Persian Empire. Now recall 
that first Nebuchadnezzar, then later on Daniel, had dreams and visions about a series of four Gentile world empires. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in which Daniel played the role of an interpreter, illustrated these four world empires in the form of a statue of a man. And the statue was made of four metals, gold, silver, silver, bronze, and iron. The head of the statue was gold. That represented the then current world kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over, Babylon. The chest and the arms of silver represented the next world kingdom that would replace his, that is Media Persia. The bronze trunk and thighs symbolized Greece, which would overthrow the Media Persian Empire. And the legs of iron pointed towards Rome, which conquered the Greek Empire. Now Daniel had his own vision that symbolized exactly the same thing. Only instead of a statue of a man, the symbolism was a series of four strange creatures. The first creature was like a lion. That was Babylon, the existing world kingdom at the time of his vision. The next creature was like a bear, which symbolized Media Persia. Following that was a creature like a leopard. It represented the Greek Empire. And the final creature was unlike any beast Daniel had ever seen. It was vicious, terrifying, ferocious, and it symbolized the Roman Empire. Now to be clear... The vision of Daniel chapter 8 that we just read occurred while the Babylonian Empire was still in power. But the vision that we're going to read in Daniel chapters 10 through 12 occurred after the Babylonian Empire was defeated. Now the Media Persia Empire ruled. The head of gold had given way to the arms and chest of silver. The lion had been defeated by the bear. So as chapter 10 opens, Daniel was now living in the time of the second stage of the prophecy of the succession of the four world empires. Now before we read chapter 10, let's also remember that Daniel had already been given a general outline of the far future by the angel Gabriel in that vision of the 70 weeks of chapter 9. Or, as seems like the more likely case, the 70 weeks indicates 490 years. And during this 490 year period, a series of six goals were to be accomplished. And the end result of these six goals is redemption. The six goals were to restrain rebellion, to complete the sin offering, to make atonement for our perverse human condition, to establish everlasting righteousness, to validate and preserve vision and profit, and finally to anoint the Holy of Holies into service. We spent a lot of time in chapter 9 discussing not only the inherent difficulties of interpreting its contents, but also fleshing out the likely range of possibilities of its meaning. Now we did eliminate a couple of possibilities because history has proven them wrong. However, just as our premise for studying chapter 9 was that we were at least partially dealing with unfulfilled prophecy, therefore we needed to be careful not to get too rigid in our conclusions, the same thing goes for chapters 10 through 12. 
Now I hope that what you've learned to this point in the book of Daniel, at least what we've studied of it so far, shows that we get much less detail than what we might like. However, there are a couple of important fundamentals that we can take to the bank. First, this is all about the steps that God will take to achieve redemption and what's going to happen in the process. Second, the redemptive process is all about Israel, not the church. The church will benefit from it. But the process is a collaborative matter between God and Israel. And just as important, the details in Daniel have, over the centuries, become mixed with various Christian denominational agendas and not just a little speculation to arrive at some firm conclusions that I don't think are warranted. It's not that some parts of these resulting end times doctrines we've all heard about might not turn out to be true. It's only that it would be mostly by either luck or perhaps some kind of private insight given by God to an individual who developed his conclusions about how it was going to come about. So let's stick with what the scriptures tell us. Let others rely on their speculation. I think we're going to be better off for it and considerably more prepared for any eventuality that these, when these prophecies begin to come about in what must be the near future. So, open your Bibles now to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, page 1113, 1113 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Koresh, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. The word was certain, a great war. He understood the word, having gained understanding in the vision. And at that time, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three whole weeks. I hadn't eaten any food that satisfied me. Neither meat nor wine had entered my mouth. And I didn't anoint myself once until three full weeks had passed. On the 24th day of the first month, I was on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, when I looked up. There before me was a man, dressed in linen, wearing a belt made of fine Ufaz gold. His body was like beryl, his face looked like lightning, his eyes like fiery torches, his arms and feet were the color of burnished bronze. And when he spoke, it sounded like the roar of a crowd. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see the vision. However, a great trembling fell over them, so that they rushed to hide themselves. Thus I was left alone. And when I saw this great vision, there was no strength left in me. My face, normally pleasant looking, became disfigured. I had no strength. I heard his voice speaking, and when I heard him speaking, I fell down in a faint with my face to the ground, and then a hand touched me. It raised me, tottering to my hands and knees, and he said to me, Daniel, you're a greatly loved man. Now pay attention to the words I'm saying to you and stand upright, for it is to you that I've been sent. 
After he had said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Don't be afraid, Daniel, because since the first day that you determined to understand, to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of what you said. The prince of the kingdom of Persia prevented me from coming for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to assist me so that I was no longer needed there with the kings of Persia. So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the Akhri Hayamim, the latter days. For there is still another vision which will relate to those days. And after he had said these things to me, I looked down at the ground and I couldn't speak. Then someone who looked like a human being touched my lips, after which I could open my mouth and speak. And I said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, it is because of the vision that I am seized with such anguish, I don't have any strength. For how can this servant of my Lord speak with my Lord when my strength and breath have failed me? Then again someone who looked human touched me and revived me. And he said, You man so greatly loved, don't be afraid. Shalom to you. Be strong. Yes, truly strong. His speaking to me strengthened me. And I said, My Lord, keep speaking because you've given me strength. And then he said, Do you know why I came to you? Although I now I must return to fight the prince of Persia and when I leave the prince of Greece will come nevertheless I will tell you what is written in the book of truth there is no one standing with me against them except Michael your prince the time of Daniel's vision is in the third year of the reign of Koresh king of Persia. Koresh in English is Cyrus, also known as Cyrus the Great. Some scholars say that this verse is at odds with the final few words of Daniel chapter 1. Listen to Daniel chapter 1 starting at verse 18. When the time the king had set for them to be presented came, the chief officer presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king spoke with them, none was found among them, all of them, to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in all matters requiring wisdom and understanding, whenever the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and exorcists in his entire kingdom. So Daniel remained there until the first year of King Koresh. Thus some academics say we have a problem. Daniel 10 says Daniel was in service to Koresh in the third year of the king's reign, while Daniel 1 says it was only until the first year of Koresh's reign. But that's reading into the scriptures something that's not there. Chapter 1 clearly implies that Daniel's final year of formal employment would occur during the first year of the Persian king Koresh's reign. That is, essentially, this was the final year that Daniel was in any kind of official service as an administrator. Chapter 10 says nothing about Daniel being in service to King Koresh. It only employs what is known as the regnal dating system to explain the timing of Daniel's vision. See, the, reg the regnal dating method was standard and customary inside and outside of the Bible to speak of dates in terms of when such and such a king was in power. 
So the best conclusion is that Daniel was now in his second year of retirement because he was a pretty old man, probably in his 90s. He was a free agent serving no one. Another point of context is that Daniel served King Koresh up until the year the king gave the order to release the Jews to return to their homeland. That was in the first year of this king's reign. Listen to this in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of King Koresh, king of Persia, in order for the word of Adonai prophesied by Jeremiah to be fulfilled, Adonai stirred up the spirit of Koresh, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his whole kingdom, which he also put in writing as follows. Here is what Koresh, king of Persia, says. Adonai, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms on earth. He's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. He may go up to Jerusalem and Judah to build the house of Adonai, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, no matter where he lives, be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, goods and animals in addition to the voluntary offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So, about two years have passed since we could properly say that the exile of the Jews to Babylon was over. And a few hundred, maybe a few thousand Jews had already found their way back to Judah and they were working with Cyrus's blessings to rebuild the temple and trying to make Jerusalem more livable. A good estimate then would be that the time of this event in Daniel, chapter 10, is about 535 B.C., give or take a couple of years. Also note that it would be logical that since in the first year of King Cyrus's rule he freed the Jews to go home, this freedom would of course extend to Daniel being released from his service to the king. After all... Daniel's service had always been involuntary. He was forcibly carried off to Babylon and placed into service to the empire because of his skills, not because he applied for the job. But his reputation was so outstanding that each successive king insisted on retaining him. With Cyrus's decree in the first year of his reign, the Jews were freed. And that would have included Daniel. It's just that Daniel chose to remain in Babylon, by the way, as did the majority of Jews, rather than return to Judah. And Daniel 10 verse 1 says that a word was revealed to Daniel. The term word is debar in Hebrew. The term revealed is galah in Hebrew. Debar is the same Hebrew word used back in the book of Exodus to denote what we call the Ten Commandments. That is, the Hebrew word for commandment is mitzvot. 
However, the Bible calls those ten instructions given to Moses on Mount Sinai debar, word, not mitzvot, commandments. So, biblically speaking, there is no such thing as the Ten Commandments. It's a Christian misnomer. Rather, it's called the Ten Words. So we can see that when the Bible uses the term word, debar, the meaning leads towards the presenting of a divine oracle or message as opposed to the giving of a regulation or a commandment. Now, Gelah means revelation. But the word for vision is Chazon. And what we find then is that Chazon is not used in this passage in Daniel. So what's happening here in chapter 10 is not a dream that Daniel's having while he's asleep. It also is not a vision, a Chazon in the sense of a conscious or a semi-conscious inspiration like Daniel had in his first two visions. Rather, the proceedings of chapters 10 to 12 was a fully awake, actual happening that even involved a very real glimpse into the spiritual realm. So we see a progression during Daniel's life of how it is that God was able to communicate with him. See, we've spoken about about this before. That it is a biblical principle that a dream is actually the most inferior form of receiving revelation from God. Next up from that is a semi or fully conscious vision that takes place in the mind. And then finally, the greatest is a real tangible event that actually connects with the physical world. For example, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and he had his encounter with a risen Christ, it wasn't in a dream. It wasn't a vision. It was a real event that happened on a tangible, physical level. And what we see in the book of Daniel is that this progression of how God communicated with Daniel moved from his interpreting another's dream to having his own dream to seeing a vision to now experiencing a real event. And it must have coincided with Daniel's progressive spiritual growth. And this is something we ought to pay attention to. Because the principle still holds true. God will communicate with us on progressively more conscious and tangible levels generally in line with the progress of our own spiritual maturity. And I think that's something that believers kind of inherently understand, even if it's kind of hard to explain. The next thing we learn is what the core subject of this vision is. And most 
versions say is speaking of a great war. However, this meaning isn't so certain. The Hebrew word being used is Sava, and it can mean a number of things. When we use the phrase, the Lord of hosts, something rather common to us, we are translating the Hebrew phrase, Adonai Seva Ot. So, Seva usually has more the sense of being a host, meaning a large number. And it's usually in the terms of spiritual warriors, at time of heavenly stars. Usually it more often means that than a a human army. But that's not to say that it can, can't, or at times doesn't mean an army of humans, spiritual, or... uh, Let me say that again. It It doesn't mean that it can't be a human army. It does mean that sometimes. But here in Daniel, it can mean warfare in general. Zeva can mean spiritual warfare, it can mean human warfare. So various Bibles will translate it differently. Some will say great power. Others will even say appointed time or great conflict or great warfare. See, I think, however, that the remainder of the oracle that goes on through chapters 11 and 12 makes it pretty clear that this oracle to Daniel focuses on both spiritual and human warfare. So I feel pretty confident that the core subject speaks of war. But I want you to be aware of the other possibilities. In verse 2, Daniel explains he's been mourning for three weeks. Also, he had been fasting by not eating meat or any of the special foods that his lofty position allowed him to eat regularly. That is, he ate very plainly during these 21 days. He didn't quit eating altogether. It also mentions that he didn't anoint himself. This is not religious practice he's referring to. Rather, a better translation would be that he didn't apply any ointment during that time. See, people in that era, if they were well off enough, used moisturizing and soothing lotions and oils on their skin as a luxury because they lived in a dry climate, because it smelled good. So as a sign of mourning, he didn't indulge in this luxury. Now verse 4 explains something important. It was on the 24th day of the first month of the year when this oracle from God came to Daniel. Now, although it's not mentioned, as students of the Torah, we ought to recognize that this event is referring to the month of Nisan, which is when that series of three spring biblical feasts occurs. Beginning on Nisan 14th and going through the 22nd is Passover, Matzah, and First Fruits. So, did this fasting have to do directly with the three feasts? I don't think so. I think it was somewhat coincidental, maybe somewhat symbolic. And partly, this is because Passover, Matzah, and First Fruits aren't meant to be a time of mourning. So what was he mourning about? We're going to make that connection in just a few more verses. 
Daniel was standing on the banks of a river that most translators agree was the Tigris. But even that's in doubt. The word Tigris does not appear in these verses. Rather, it's the word he dekel, he dekel. And this word indicates one of the ancient rivers that coursed from the land of Eden and headed towards Assyria. Therefore, some think it's referring to the Tigris. Others think it's referring to the Euphrates. Nevertheless, Daniel was physically present on the banks of a great river for some reason that's not explained. Daniel apparently was there suspecting nothing, expecting nothing, when suddenly he looks up and there is a man dressed in linen, meaning a white garment typical of what priests wore. And he was also wearing a belt or a sash made of Ufa's gold. Now, Ufa's gold simply means it was the finest gold. There's no known place called Ufa's. So, perhaps it is simply a word that was coined to indicate its superior quality. A belt in that era was it used like it is today to hold up your pants? Rather, the belt was made of cloth. It went around the waist, usually at least a couple of times. And its purpose was as a place to stuff one corner of that long tunic that went to the ground. It was the standard dress for females and males. One would use that belt as a place to tuck in the bottom part of the garment so you could provide more freedom of movement for your legs. It's probably more or less the same thing as the common biblical phrase of girding up your loins before going into battle. Tucking the bottom of your skirt into your belt was for the purpose of springing into action. And the action could range from warfare to merely walking more comfortably. But this man with the belt that Daniel saw was no mere human being. So the term Ish, man, is only meant figuratively. The description we get sounds an awful lot like the description we get of God in Ezekiel. A body like beryl, a face like lightning, eyes like fire, speech like the roar of a crowd. Therefore, it is common among Christians to say this man that Daniel encountered had to be God. And since this person is described as a man, therefore it must be the second person of the Trinity, Christ. Now, I can't say this is wrong with any unmovable conviction, but I have real doubts. And I don't subscribe to this viewpoint because it's mainly based on the Roman Catholic version of the Trinity which has become adopted by most of the Protestant branches of the church. So I think there is a tendency to read the doctrine of the Trinity back into this story. Thus, as we read along, those who insist this has to be Christ also insist that at least two and probably three different beings were present with Daniel. We're going to discuss that shortly. Before we get there, however, let's back up to verse 7. Verse 7. 
Daniel clearly sees this vision, apparition, whatever you want to call it. But the men with him don't. Yet they felt it. They sensed some awesome presence of something powerful, something supernatural. They couldn't identify it and so they were terrified. I mean, was it was it good or was it malevolent? See, it was much like that when Paul went to Damascus and the Lord interrupted his journey. There were men with him who heard the ascended Messiah's voice, or at least some kind of a noise, suddenly coming out of the sky. But they didn't see that flash of light that blinded Paul, and they apparently couldn't discern what the voice was saying. The men with Daniel retreated in haste, when this feeling of terror overcame them and Daniel was left standing there alone. Why didn't he flee too? Because he had similar supernatural experiences before and no doubt he knew that a meeting with a divine presence was underway, no matter how uncomfortable it was. Nonetheless, this is something one never gets used to. He was so overwhelmed and filled with anxiety that his face became contorted under the stress. His knees buckled, his body shook uncontrollably, and when the voice began to instruct him, his instinct was immediately to fall to the ground and assume the position of submission and worship. What happens next for me is an indication that this was probably not Christ. Because this being gently touches him. So now we know it's more than an apparition. And he says to Daniel, Daniel, you are a greatly loved man. Now pay attention to the words I'm saying to you and stand upright for it is to you that I have been sent. God doesn't dispatch himself as a messenger. And when someone lays prostrate before God, properly so, he doesn't tell them to stand up and confront him face to face. Verse 12 then gives us some information that relates now back to verse 2. This being says that from the moment that Daniel began to pray, his words were heard by God. And this being came because of what Daniel said. However, he says in verse 13, he was held up for 21 days by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Notice that Daniel fasted and mourned for 21 days. And that this angelic being was held up from coming to Daniel for... 21 days. This is the same 21 days. That is, on day one, Daniel began praying. God heard. And he immediately dispatched this messenger, this being, with a word from the Lord. But this being was unable to get to Daniel for 21 days because he had to contend with this mysterious prince of Persia. So, Daniel had to wait. He had to suffer for three weeks and of course had no idea 
that this heavenly messenger with God's answer was on his way. I mean, for all Daniel knew, God had not yet responded, maybe he didn't even intend to. It reminds us of Job, who had no idea why God seemingly abandoned him and allowed calamity after calamity to befall him. Only we find out later that God was aware He was involved from the beginning. He was contending with Satan. And Job was completely unaware that he was the object of this contention. But why was Daniel in a state of mourning? The Hebrew sages have an answer for this, and I suspect that they're correct. Now some Christian commentators, such as Dr. Keel says, he was praying for the deliverance of the Jewish people. But that can't be because we have a number of direct scripture references that tell us that in the first year of King Cyrus, he freed the Jews. This event is happening two years later. So the Jews are already freed. Rather it is, says the Jewish sages, that Daniel was heartbroken and devastated that the rebuilding of the temple was hindered to the point that the project had all but collapsed. The local residents had moved into Judah and the area of Jerusalem while the Jews were exiled. They were the culprits. And apparently, King Cyrus wasn't doing anything to stop these folks from causing trouble. The temple was everything. For 70 years, the Jews were left to wallow in their sins and their uncleanness with no remedy because they had no temple, no altar, so there was no operational priesthood. The ultra-pious Daniel would have felt this loss the most. This ongoing conflict in Judah between the returning Jews and the locals Well, this was well known in the region. It was even recorded with some detail in the book of Ezra. Ezra 4, 1 through 5 says this. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people from the exile were building a temple to Adonai, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' clans and said to them, Let us build along with you, for we seek your God, just as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharhadon, king of Asher, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel... Yeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' clans in Israel answered them, You and we have nothing in common that you should join us in building a house for our God. We'll build it by ourselves for Adonai, the God of Israel, as Korish, king of Persia, ordered us to do. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to frustrate their plans throughout the lifetime of Korish, king of Persia, and even on into the reign of Daryavesh, king of Persia. Continuing in Daniel 10.13, this angelic being tells Daniel that the only way he was even finally able to disengage from this battle with the, the prince of Persia is that Mikael, one of the chief princes, came to help him. Essentially, 
Mikael came to relieve this unnamed angel from his battle so that he could continue on to Daniel with God's oracle. Now if you're paying attention, this ought to raise a lot of questions. Beginning with, who or what is the Prince of Persia? Now liberal scholars say that this is some unnamed human king of Persia. But that makes no sense. A prince, a Tsar in Hebrew, is not just another name for a king, a Melech. Further, it's obvious that this being speaking to Daniel is a spiritual being. And if he's fighting anyone, it's another spiritual being. Now, while we can't take too much from these few mysterious words, I can assert this with full confidence. We are talking about spiritual beings who are each assigned to assist certain nations. In our current situation, one of them is to help Israel, the other is to help Persia. And yet, there is some human physical interaction taking place as well. Because the end of verse 13 says that this special angel whom Mikael relieved was no longer needed there with the kings of Persia. So this brings up again our principle of the reality of duality. For everything that happens on earth, there is a spiritual component. And by the way, as we end our lesson today, we shouldn't assume that this spiritual prince over Persia is evil or is a demon. The claim is often made by Christian commentators that that's the case, but there's no evidence for that. His assignment is to contend for Persia. Our unnamed angel's job is to contend for Israel. That doesn't necessarily make one of them wicked. For one thing, remember, God ordained that Persia should create a powerful Gentile empire that conquers Babylon. That was to punish Babylon. For another thing, the current king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, well, he was a great friend to the Jewish people. He sincerely sought to right what he perceived as the wrongs that the Babylonians had done to the Jews by subjugating them, by destroying their precious temple of worship to their god, Jehovah. And as we found out, he sent them back with funds and his blessing to rebuild it. Let's stop here. We'll pick up with this next week.